0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, May the 16th, the beginning of the work week for many of us. We've done a number of shows recently on... uh, one kind of female empowerment or another. This morning, we already did a show with the art historian Charlotte Mullins, uh, who has a new book out, "A Little History of Art," um, which she told me about uh, the need to correct the 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 uh, the version of art history which suggests there were no female artists. Much of this is bound up in what. Another of my guests recently, the English writer Marianne Seacart, describes um, as the authority gap, why women are still taken less seriously than men and what we can do about it. Seagard writes about the authority gap, both inside and outside the workplace, both inside and outside the university. Last year, did an interesting show with a writer, Benjamin Lipscomb, on four groundbreaking female philosophers he called his book uh the women are up to something and today we are going to talk um about another group of four women who are indeed up to something they have a new book out it's called the no club putting a stop to women's dead end work it's by four female american academics linda babcock brenda Pazer, uh liz Vesterlund, london lori weingarten i'm thrilled that um Liz uh, Vestaland is joining us from Pittsburgh today. Uh, Liz, the No Club, what does that mean? Have you decided that you're not going to put up with it anymore?
1: That That's what we thought we had decided. So the No Club uh, was formed 12 years ago when I, along with a group of other women, sort of felt our careers had uh, gone in the wrong direction. We felt like we were working really, really hard, and our careers really were not progressing in what we uh decided uh back then was that we're going to start saying no to additional requests uh, that were sort of not core to where we wanted to be with our careers but what we found out was that saying no was not the solution because everybody was expecting us to say yes so uh, what the no club is about is sort of the entire path of the journey of this club that we had the research that we subsequently did And I think the no club now more means a no to sort of the expectations that we have of women to take on the non-promotable work uh, that in many ways derails their careers.
0: Your fellow authors, Linda Babcock, uh, Brenda Pacer, and uh, Laurie Weingart, they're all professors, they're all white women, they're all professors of important, impressive colleges. Are you suggesting that your careers were collectively stymied by uh, a kind of dead end work? None of you have dead end jobs, do you?
1: No, I think what's dead end work uh, as an academic is doing a lot of administrative work. So the, the core jobs as an academic is to do research and teach students. And what All four of us were doing was a lot of administrative work, so we were on lots of recruiting committees um, editorial boards refereeing uh, advising many more students uh, than our male colleagues and uh, all of this service work uh, is critical to the organizations and critical to our to the academia in general, Um, but it was not work that we were getting any recognition from. So, you know, all of us were serving on lots of very demanding internal committees that certainly helped the university. But when it came to salary increases and getting outside offers, that's not the kind of work that gets uh, valued.
0: Liz, is this the the explanation? Is it bound up with what Marianne Seacott calls the authority gap? Is it simply that men and the male administration, men in power, don't take women seriously, so they give you all the... The boring work, the bureaucratic work, the uninspirational work.
1: I I don't think that's all it is. Um, so what we're seeing in um, it, it could certainly be a contributing factor. Um, what we're seeing in our work is even when it's work that um, where authority doesn't seem to to play any role, is that uh, women are often volunteering for assignments that everyone wants to get done but nobody wants to do so um, it seems like the the, sort of the raw expectation of women taking on this work makes them volunteer uh, when they're in a group where there are both men and women whereas uh, if you put them in a group with only women they volunteer less because they can count on other women to step up whereas if you put men in a group with only men uh, they volunteer more because the women are not around uh, to take on the work. So it's it's really, there's a, what we're pointing to in our research is that there's this underlying expectation that women are taking on the work that we all want to get done, but that nobody wants to do. And while that certainly means that we also ask women more to take on this work, um, part of that is just coming from the raw expectation that when we want somebody to take on work that nobody else wants to do, we are inclined to ask women to do it.
0: Yeah, but Liz, you're not, you're not really answering my question. Why is that? I mean, is it because uh, stuff is taken for granted from the family, from culture, so men can say no to worthless work, whereas women can't? Do women need to rethink their ability to say no? Um, or are men not being asked the same questions?
1: The response to, to, they're they're not being asked the same questions. And the response to a yes and no is very different if you're male or female. So you're sort of asking two different questions. So, in terms of where are these expectations coming from, we we know that in many of our collective decisions, um, we are sort of, you know, we're just trying to coordinate on something. We're trying to figure out how do we best solve this problem. And the way that we have solved these problems when we want something to be done is that we coordinate on women doing this work now. um, what that means is that when we ask a woman to do the work and if she declines, we respond negatively because we expect her to do the work, whereas her saying yes doesn't get a positive response because that's what we expected the response from men saying no is very different. If they say yes, we think they're golden. If they say no it's sort of what we expected so those expectations mean that we are uh, asking the women more and even when we ask the men if they decline we don't respond negatively so it's sort of it puts women very much in a bind in terms of how they can respond to these requests and you know part of it why, why are we expecting women to do this work well in many ways we we have these norms for women that suggest that they should be helpers. And maybe that's the impetus for these expectations. But we can certainly see that the general expectation that is contributing to women doing more of this non-promotable work in organizations is that we all expect them to take this on.
0: Are you finding this, leads that um, even when women ask other women, it's the same problem that... How much gender blindness is it? Does it work in, in every context? Because there are lots of heads of department who are female as opposed to male. Do, do they go about it in the same way?
1: They they do. So women ask women and men ask women. So it doesn't matter if you're a male or female boss. You will be inclined to ask the women to take on this work. So again, let,
0: let's get back to why. Is this, are, are you suggesting it's it's rooted in, in culture? Um, is it, I mean, not not all these women have families, not all these women have children, not all these women are married. So, so why is this the case?
1: So I, I think, you know, um, there are many, you, you know, you, you could say, well, maybe part of it is the expectations we have of nurture, maybe part of it is the, the expectations that we have from nature. Uh, I think the, the interesting, Point. It's, it's always hard to say, where do expectations come from? Um, they are there. We can document that they're there. But where they came from is certainly a much harder scientific question to answer. Um, we, we know that this notion of women being helpers is a general one that we hold as expectations. But what the sort of the, the cost of those expectations is, is harder to narrow down. I think what's um, more interesting is that this is not coming women are not doing more of this work solely because uh, they enjoy this work more. They're not doing this work because they're better at it. So um, I I think the interesting part is really that the expectations are driving this rather than gender differences in ability or gender differences in preferences, which we might have been inclined to say from the get go is that the reason why women are doing this work is they are just more altruistic, maybe Uh, They have, you know, maybe they're just born to care more about the collective. And that's the reason why uh, they're stepping up to do this work. And what we're showing is that these differences arise even in environments where there are no differences in preferences. There are no differences in performance and where the only factor driving this is the expectation that women are doing this work more. And it's an expectation that is shared in the sense that others expect you to do the work and Uh, you expect yourself to do the work.
0: How much is this manifested in in wages, Elise? Uh, We did a show last year with Claudia Golden. I'm sure you're familiar with her work, uh, Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Towards Equity. She suggests in her book and in the interview we did that there's a class difference, that upper-class women are able... To raise their wages, and lower class, working class women, particularly women of color, aren't able. Is this what you found in the No Club? Is are, are there profound uh, class differences in women in terms of dead end work and and their ability to say no?
1: So we're we're finding differences in women doing. We're so at every single profession, every rank that we've looked at, we're seeing women doing more of the non-promotable work. So. If you're looking at supermarket clerks, uh, women are more likely to be sitting at checkout rather than working around the store, which is the job that will get you promoted. If you look at architects, uh, women there are doing more non-promotable work. If you are a lawyer, women are more likely to do the pro bono work, uh, more likely to do the administrative work. So engineers, anywhere you look, women are more likely to do the non-promotable work. Um, so I, I don't think it is um, depends on the class uh, and position that you are in women everywhere are doing more of this work. What we are seeing is that sort of women of color are doing even more of the non-promotable work uh, than white women. So I, I think there is a class difference or there, there is sort of a very strong status component that comes into play in who is taking on this work and our expectations of who will take on this work.
0: How would you respond? I'm not saying these people would necessarily articulate this, but there'll be some people watching this, Lisa, say, well, there are these upper class white women. They teach in fancy schools. They're not particularly happy with their job, but they're still well paid. They have a great deal of security. The real challenge is the working class female. We did a show with Sarah Jaffe about the exploitation of women at Walmart. I did one a few months ago with the labor organizer Daisy Pitkin about how Women are playing an increasingly central role um, in unions uh, to, to to create union uh, to to create labor organizations and fight for justice. Um, isn't that the real challenge, uh, a political challenge, rather than simply improving the quality of one's work? Uh, I think
1: I think one of the challenges that we've faced when we look at gender equity is that we've been so focused on sort of the observable differences. So looking at gender wage gaps has been sort of where a lot of the emphasis has been where in fact um, the very large gender wage gaps are coming when we look at advancement where women are just advancing at a much lower rate in every single occupation that we look at. So many of the examples that are sort of naturally coming out is looking at you know, sort of white-collar jobs. To what extent are you working on internal uh, committee work? To what extent are you doing the administrative work, preparing presentations rather than giving them, doing onboarding, et cetera. Um, But this is a phenomenon that shows up everywhere that women work, um, where the expectation, whenever it comes to a job that isn't recognized and isn't rewarded, our expectation is that it will be done uh, by the female employee. So um, while it might be easier to identify what the non-promotable assignment is uh, in sort of white-collar jobs because they all um, sort of lots of people are doing onboarding and, and committee work, et cetera, those jobs are showing up everywhere. And you know we have sort of a, a tendency to focus on um, you know what often is characterized as office housework. Um, but it's just symbolic of how these assignments need to be done. Any, any organization we look at will have assignments that are not contractually tied to a particular employee and somebody has to pick them up. And if we set up incentive systems where everybody um, sort of benefits from shirking, uh, those assignments are going to go to a certain class of employees. and what we're showing in our work is that that class employees of employees, tend to be female rather than male.
0: Okay, so if we accept your point, what are we going to do about it? We had a a show with the great, uh, I don't know if we would call her a feminist writer, female writer, uh, Antonia Fraser. She just has a new book out, uh, The Case of a Married Woman, Caroline Norton and her fight for justice for women in the courts when it comes to the rights for women to be divorced. Is this something that needs to be addressed legally? Lisa, uh, do we need new laws to make sure that um, that women are no longer stuck in these dead end jobs and that they're always forced to do the the mundane tasks while the men go on to do the fun stuff?
1: No, we don't need new laws. Uh, What we need is awareness of these uh, issues. What's interesting about this work is that There's not just a strong fairness case, for why we should change things here, there is also a very strong business case. It is not in the interest of organizations to distribute work to the employees who are least reluctant to take it on. It's in the interest of the employer to give it to the employee who's best at doing the assignment. So recognizing that we all fall into this trap of giving the assignment to the employee who will just say, I'm happy to do that work is a mistake for the organization. So
0: organizations, I I could have I could have a thousand HR people on from all the biggest corporations in America, and they would all claim that they treat men and women equally and that they don't discriminate. So when when are you going to get people to actually admit to this?
1: Well, so we're going to get them to admit to it um, by by looking at the data that they have on how employees are spending their time. Uh, We worked with one organization where they had very detailed data on how the employees were spending their time. So we could look at how everybody has. Which, spent which organization was that? I, I can't tell you what it is, which organization it Why? was because they've, asked, because they've asked us not to.
0: Um, and well that's not very convincing if, if, if you're not able to reveal the organization.
1: Well, I think that's the way that you get organizations to work with you and show their data because they don't want to be revealed. Um, you know, so, um. That that's how it typically is. If you work with an organization, in order to be able to reveal the results, they will ask that you mask the identity. That's that's very, very common in academia because otherwise no organization would work with us. Um obviously documenting I,
0: I don't mean to sound too skeptical here, but you have one organization you found that's willing to reveal their data, they're not willing to reveal their name. You say that. You're going to convince what the rest of corporate America to change everything about their culture because of one anonymous? No, we,
1: we've worked with many other organizations. This is the one organization where I know that women were spending 200 more hours per year on non-promotable work. Yeah, it doesn't telling- surprise
0: me. I mean, I, I buy your thesis, but I'm just—it's—it's it's not clear to me how this gets resolved if you just rely on corporations who tend to be incredibly conservative, mostly run by men, mostly run by fairly unimaginative men. So I just don't see how this changes.
1: I, I think one of the ways you change it is just through small steps is to to point out how simple the solutions are. There's no reason to ask for volunteers in an organization if we know that women are more likely to volunteer. Uh, that's a step that has been taken by my own institution. I mean, academia is not the sort of the type of institution that's most eager to change and yet we've managed to change it at the University of Pittsburgh, so that we don't ask for volunteers anymore, we just put names into our hat and while that seems like a very small step. It does hit, help raise mm-hmm. awareness about the costs that are associated with women doing an excessive amount of these non promotable assignments, so I, I think for organizations to just raise awareness that they. Uh, are not interested in settling all their new employees of where they take the female employees and give them more non-promotable work than their male employees. That's not in in the interest of organizations and encouraging them to keep track of who's doing what so that everybody gets a chance to demonstrate their potential. And I think what's exciting about this work is that we don't just have our standard fairness case where we say, this is not nice for women. We also have a very strong business case because it is not in the interest of organizations to distribute work so differentially when we don't know that it is done according to the underlying skills that these males and females have.
0: you what you're you're looking for, and I'm sympathetic, I hope it happens is a a seismic cultural shift within organisations and perhaps society. Do you have any other models for when this happened in a different area where people have quite literally changed their intrinsic assumptions?
1: I think it's a very gradual process. Certainly, um, you know. Well, how long
0: is it going to take? Five well, so, centuries? so
1: so you know, we we spoke to the Harvard Kennedy School uh, in response to our work. They have changed the the expectations that they have for how many non-promotable assignments that uh, employees are taking on. So they, um, you know, now in order to get a satisfactory performance review, you have to have spent a certain number of hours on non-promotable assignments. So otherwise, you can't get a satisfactory performance review. That's one step, it may not go all the way, but it's certainly a critical step if we want male and females to take on this work, you know within my own organization every single new uh, I was the chair of my own department everybody who. uh, comes in now is informed of these issues and the institution is now keeping track of the kind of service assignments that that employees have the organization that we work with certainly changed their practices, so it is not going to happen overnight, but small steps and awareness of this happening can, you know, put things in place that can see change within organizations. And, you know, there are few changes that happen, you know, at the flip of a light switch, but certainly having the conversation and discussing whether we're allowing male and female employees of similar skills to demonstrate those skills equally uh, seems like a reasonable place to start. Why not start
0: more politically? We did a, we've done many shows on voting. We did a show a couple of years ago with a wonderful writer, Martha S. Jones, on Vanguard, on Black women voting. Don't you need to create a more aggressive, muscular political organization for this? I mean, you've cited one one case of an anonymous corporation, and then two initiatives at elite universities in America. You've got. Three fellow upper-class white women who, co-authoring your book. Don't you need a broader coalition of women on this?
1: Um, so th- we, we've worked with other organizations as well. Um, we have worked with other organizations to to give, you know, talks to give them slide decks that have put things okay. in change. Can you
0: give me it's, some examples? Uh,
1: so one organization uh, wanted us just to come in and uh, give clear indications of how they could change practices. Uh, so, you know, there's been, we've been working on this for 12 years. I've easily given 12, uh, I've easily given 100 talks uh, at different institutions on this topic. My co-authors have worked with lots of different organizations on this topic. Um, so, you know, we are, I, I think, trying to portray this as if we worked with one organization and wrote a book about it is a little extreme. Uh, we have lots of research in this book. Uh, we have done studies with thousands of undergraduates to try to look at how employees uh, volunteer in these organizations or volunteer when they're put into these positions. So um, I I think it's hard to imagine. Uh, Certainly, we have yet to meet a place where people don't recognize that women are doing more of this work. Uh, Yeah, no, I I
0: agree with you on that. I think most people, I think most I don't think most people, I think some people would agree. What about the argument Lise, that some people might make, the no club uh, in in terms of responding to your book, uh, the subtitle, Putting a Stop to Women's Dead-End Work? Some people might argue well, women need dead-end work to support themselves. Uh, Many working class women, especially now, perhaps the end of Roe versus Wade, more and more female poverty. Dead-end work is not necessarily a bad thing if it if it's the thing that enables you to feed your children and pay your rent?
1: So what we mean by dead-end work is within every single job that exists, there is some work that will help you get uh, advancement and higher salary. And there are some assignments within that same occupation that doesn't do that. So the dead-end work is not saying that you have an occupation where there's no clear path for advancement rather it is to say within your particular occupation and within your particular rank, what are the assignments that are most likely to be noted and help you get recognized for the work that you did? So look within every single job, there will be assignments that somebody has to take on to keep the organization going, to to sort of keep everybody happy, to move everything forward. And what we're seeing repeatedly is that those assignments are more likely to go to women.
0: Who are your heroes? Uh, we, we talked about uh, the women are up to something for female philosophers. Um, who, who are your sort of heroes when it comes to or heroines when it comes to feminist activism? Are there models you're trying to use because you've obviously dedicated significant amount of your time uh, and resources to the No Club? Are, are you trying to follow a, a model here in any way? In political terms or cultural terms?
1: I think the, the main model that I'm trying to follow is that, you know, I, I, I'm an economist. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about market design and and how we can improve institutions. And, uh, you know, I was a postdoc of Al Ross, who won the Nobel Prize in market design. Much of my thinking centers around market design and how we can improve uh, institutions to help them reach uh, their objectives better through small changes. And...
0: So this can be done, um, at least you believe this can be done through the market, this... this.
1: I, I think it's... Um, You know, once we start making changes, it could potentially be done by them through the market, because I think the organizations that will find ways to better distribute work will do better, they will, you know, right now we're going through this crazy period of the great resignation where uh, there's labor shortage everywhere. And certainly that great resignation has largely been led by women if institutions are eager uh, to preserve some kind of gender diversity. Uh, working hard to keep their female employees is is going to be, be be critical in that and finding ways to give them opportunities to work on assignments that they have been trained for and in ex, are excited to take on is going to help you retain them and help you tap into the potential that they bring to the market. So I I do think that there could be market solutions, but you know, we need to get the organizations to recognize this first. And what we mean by market design is really thinking carefully, you know, one solution could be to say, let's just make all the non-promotable work promotable. I, I think from a sort of a market design perspective, that's not the solution that's going to work. And it won't work because ultimately what you have to value in the organization is what other organizations value as well. I'm not going to get an ex extraordinary outside offer because I was really good at doing the holiday party. Um, So I I think the market design perspective in terms of thinking, what are the things that we can do within the the bounds of the organization to give women better opportunities um, is is guiding for that. And within sort of in terms of what is inspirational in that, you know, I think the whole um, sort of paradigm of behavioral economics and, and thinking about Uh, these issues, you know, I I think, um, so I I tend to, but I find it inspirational are the small changes that we can make in organizations to substantially uh, improve our objectives. I think uh, somebody like Iris Bonet has a a beautiful book on what works, where she summarizes all the research that has been done on gender equity and gives very concrete steps on how how do we get to the goal that we want how how do we make sure that we make offers to the right people how do we make sure that we get around the biases that we have when we are looking to hire um, uh, the best employee how do we not fall into the trap of hiring a white man because everybody else is a white man in the organization so um, sort of these practical small steps that organizations can take and sort of the behavioral, being aware of the behavioral biases that are showing up and looking at the research that helps us understand how we can improve our decision-making process.